You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, last time we started into the um, three-fold set of tools we're looking to learn about in our study, observation, what do I see? And so I wanted to just spend a minute or two and see if uh, any of you had any thoughts or questions about what we talked about last time about what it means to uh, be an observant reader of Scripture. Any questions that you might have? Okay. Nothing about the uh, medical college or anything, or you got got that, right? If you're ever in a medical lecture and they hand you a beaker of yellow liquid, you'll... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I thought you would remember that one. Okay, how about page 14? Some questions from week three. Did you all work the puzzle on page 84? <laughs> we won't go over that one. But just to, just to uh, touch on, the, that puzzle is an example of observing what? Differences? differences? Sure, the differences. And uh, uh, it, uh, I found myself, I, I didn't know that there was only five when I first looked at it. I kind of tried to overthink it. I kept looking for differences in the snowflakes in the window, and I spent too much time on it. But uh, anyway, well, then Malachi 4, 1 through 6. This was just going to be a little exercise in employing these um, developmental questions that we should bring to the text. And uh, six developmental questions to write out or chart your answers. And uh, so what did you come up with? How about the who of the passage? What did you see there? Okay, those are some some who's. Israel, yeah. Okay, you get that from the very first verse in Malachi. So it's always good. Now that's the last chapter, right? So... Um, basic rule of thumb, you would want to try to set the context, you know, to go back and see. And and uh, the very first verse, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So there's three right there. You have the Lord, you have the prophet Malachi, and you have the nation of Israel. Malachi is a prophet. He ministers between God and man. A priest would be the reverse of that, ministering between men and God. So, um, yeah, Yahweh, Malachi, Israel, and then these other people mentioned in here. Okay, what about the what? What's going on here? Judgment, Judgment? yeah. Day is coming, coming. yeah. What is it? Healing, Healing? okay. Um, what's, What's the desired response? What is, what does God want them from them? What does God always want when people are in sin? Repentance, there you go. Um, turn is the Hebrew word, the word shuv in Hebrew, to turn. Um, yeah, he wants repentance. And um, 
For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze. So this day that's out there on God's prophetic calendar is part of the topic. How about the where? Is there a where here? Horeb, okay. Horeb, the giving of the law. In a reference to the land. The land, yeah. Okay, what about the when? Is there a time frame given here? Is it future? Much of it is future. Um, comes in comes in a, a prophecy of the coming day of judgment and so on. And um, what about the why? We've already touched on that some. Repentance because of their sin. Yeah, God is responding against the sin of the people, calling them to, to turn. And the wherefore, now that, that really is um, uh, result, okay? Um, as, uh, as a result of which something is going to happen. That's, that's the concept there, okay? So you could also um, probably come up with something like that. Now, I think it, one of you guys asked me last week about these. It doesn't necessarily mean, since we have these six questions, that every single one of them is going to apply to every single verse or passage. They're just sort of what you have in your arsenal to question a text with, okay? And and you you should want to question, what about this? What about that? There's nothing wrong at all with all that. That's That's how you draw out from the text these things. Okay, any other thoughts you might have on that? That's just a little exercise, yeah. Can you explain the wherefore a little bit more? Because I was able to fill in, fill in. When I got to the wherefore, I just couldn't come up with it. Yeah, and, and I just put that there because it was one of the ones on the list, and, and um, I had to kind of dig around with it myself. Something having to do, uh, as a result of your sins, this is going to happen. Yeah, um, I think I probably would have said result, you know, or but maybe it doesn't start with a W. And an H, so you know. <laughs> cause and effect. I think is probably this, you know, and and these types of passages sometimes come under the category there of um, an explanation of the righteousness of God when He responds against sin, and it's a it's a justification of God's righteousness. Okay, when you see these in Scripture, and you see them all all through Scripture. Um, Sometimes it's it, the the jargon term is theodicy, theodicy. So theos God, and the Greek term dikaiosune or righteousness. This is validating the righteousness of God. Paul does this in Romans, you know, nine, ten, eleven, and so on. So when you see God responding against sin, that's God being justified for His judgment against sin. Okay, all through Scripture, He is always right and just. Okay, any other thoughts you might have on that? And you can take these six and, and sort of keep them in the back of your mind and, and apply them to any passage or any verse. You know, developmental questions. All right, number three. According to Paul in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, what or who are the underlying forces behind why some people depart from the faith? It's not deceitful spirits and demons. Yeah. False teaching. And, and what's the underlying generating force behind these false teachers? Some of you said it, I think. Demonic forces, okay. Um, liars whose consciences are seared 
Okay? Because they've, they've paid attention to demons. And now, for a very generous 15 and a half extra points. I thought it was generous. How is it that men with seared consciences are still influenced by demonic forces? They are then used by them to influence other people. Okay. But a seared conscience, isn't that immune to spiritual forces, you would think, maybe? I don't have an answer for it. I just was thinking about it. I hope you guys could help me out. But if your consciences burn up, how do you respond to demonic forces? Is it what again? It caused them to abandon the truth? Could be. It was something that kind of, I started pondering a little bit, you know. It doesn't seem to make them immune from demonic forces. And it's like the more you chase after it, the more vulnerable you are to it. And I, I always think of uh, Paul's uh, his, his uh, exhortation to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, his charge that he gives him, you know, to uh, preach the word. And he says, For the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but wishing to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate to themselves teachers after their own lusts, and uh, they will they will depart from the truth and be led astray. The departure is an active verb, but be led astray is passive voice. Okay? So if you if you actively, consciously depart from the truth, it doesn't say next week or next month or next year, but you will be led astray. And you can just imagine that person. They're not even going to know they're being led astray, right? As far as they're concerned, they're it it you know that but they will be led astray and uh the voice there is very important active to turn away from the truth passively then you will be led astray very serious uh consequences for rejecting the word of god okay okay how about number 4 some of you guys earned some extra points there i just occur i mean uh well, well just take it you're just going to take them anyway? You're going to abscond with them? Okay, that's fine. You can have them. Number four, how does the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 20, verse 9, describe the motivation he experienced to proclaim God's word after being ridiculed, rejected, and abused for faithfully preaching it? This occurs 20 chapters in to Jeremiah. And God calls him to preach, calls him to go and uh, rebuke the nation for their sins. And um, essentially, you know, and by the way, they're not going to respond or believe a thing you tell them. Okay? And he goes and he does that. And he just gets whacked around and beat up and abused. And in that passage, chapter 19, um, God he gives the message of the judgment that's coming. And then in chapter 20, now Pasher the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. The next day when Pasher released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, the Lord does not call your name Pasher, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. 
They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on, and I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah into the hand of their enemies who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. That is speaking truth to power, is it not? After he just put you in the stocks. Okay? And then Jeremiah, it, it, you probably see the text um, in your Bible, at least here in the ESV. It, it sets the text aside as if this is like a soliloquy where he's just turning and talking to God. Jeremiah, O oh Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. And then this tremendous verse. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. I'm done preaching your word. I'm done teaching your word. It's over for me. I get nothing but abuse. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. I cannot. Okay? What's going on with this man? I think I like the new... Who's got a New American Standard on LSB? Anybody? Go ahead and read it. Would you mind? Read that verse from that. Yeah, what I wanted to point out there, it, it becomes uh, like a, a, a fire in my heart, burning in my bones. It burns in my heart like a fire in my bones. It's almost like he's mixing metaphors there. But you see what's going on here? Um, this is a man who has a compulsion to communicate God's word. That's what I'm trying to point out. It's internal, right? And... Uh, there are men who, if, if the ruling powers even barely hint that they probably shouldn't teach or preach or maybe shut the doors of their church, they get a little weak in the knees, you know, and start to tremble. Um, but not Jeremiah, okay? Quite a contrast. And uh, it, it could get that way even more and more, maybe in the future, okay? So it's just something I wanted to point out. He, his motivation is an internal compulsion, Okay. I've heard a lot of guys, and early on in my walk with the Lord, I used to hear guys in the, in the pulpit say, well, I answered the call to preach. I answered the call. <laughs> you heard that? And I, for a long time, I was feeling, well, I haven't heard any call to preach. I just, you know, maybe I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't serve the Lord. But in my mind, I couldn't separate salvation from service. And then I saw that, that passage, and I thought, bingo, there it is. That's it. It's not, it's not a calling externally. It is an internal compulsion. And so your study of the Word of God hopefully will generate that kind of an impulse in you as well. Okay, number five. When Paul preached to Jews in their synagogues, he pointed to Jesus as the Christ revealed in their own scriptures. The prophets say this, the prophets say that. And therefore held them accountable before God to repent and believe. But when he preached to the Greeks in Acts 17, he appealed to what? Okay, the unknown God, and, and who did what? Resurrection of Jesus. 
Okay, that comes a little later on. And because this resurrected Christ is coming back to judge, but what does he appeal to that they could definitely identify with in that passage? What is it? Poetry? Well, he talks about that, but what can every unregenerate person see and witness apart from Scripture? General revelation, which is? Creation, right? So his witness to them was based upon creation. He does not appeal to the Jewish prophets. Why? Well, they wouldn't have a clue what he was saying. But they can still be held just as accountable, just like what Paul says in Romans, you know. Um, the Creator God created the universe, and uh, that creates accountability for uh, as far as everyone is concerned. So creation holds them accountable. The heavens declare the glory of God. And uh, anybody can see that, even the little uh, proverbial guy out in the middle of the Brazilian rainforest that everybody worries about. You know, what about him? No one ever took the gospel to him. That's not the issue. He needs the gospel to be saved, but he doesn't need the gospel to be held accountable for his sins. It's a very important concept. People want to accuse God of not being fair, not being fair, except God is just and righteous when he judges someone because they have revelation in creation or general revelation like that says so that's just what i was kind of going to point out there plus he does not appeal to their philosophy these were men steeped in greek philosophy and he doesn't use that oh gee i can relate to these guys if i talk to them use some of their philosophy just look at creation it holds you accountable to believe in god it appeals to their conscience to their conscience by saying you worship yeah. Demonstrating that you do recognize there is God. You're religious people. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's internal and it's also external. It's all around them. And that little guy in the Brazilian rainforest, look at the creation that surrounds him. I mean, he can see creation. He's just living right in the middle of it. Okay, number six. The Apostle Peter commands Christian husbands to... Live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. 1 Peter 3, 7. Now, observation. This requires you to observe your wife if you are going to understand her. List several observations you had made of your, of your wife that have led you to understand her better. Sharing with the class is optional. Doing the work is not. Okay? If you're married, that's a command for you. Anybody want to share any observations that you may have made? Ongoing process? Okay. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And we men may not think about this all that much, or it may be harder than it Sounds on the surface, but it's still a command from God, right? And I put it here because it's in the category of observation. Okay, well, I wanted to put that in there because that is an observation. It is a command to for husbands to, to do that. Okay, all right. Anything else from that study last week? If not, we'll move into interpretation. This is week four, and... Uh, we're going to be talking about five principles of interpretation this evening. And uh, before we do, let's see here what we got. Here we go. 
Yeah, little bit of a uh, little bit of housework here. Just to remind you that the reading for next week is Zuk chapter 12, okay? And uh, he put the chapter on on application at the end of his book. That's the last chapter in the book. But since I wanted to go through all three of these, and if you if you look at that index in the front of your notes, let's talk a little bit about where we're going and how we're going to get there. On page two, um, I wanted to get observation, interpretation, and application all right in a row, so I pulled that reading up to be the reading for next week. That's week five. And then once we get that, we'll go back to the, the chapters, and they'll just follow right along until um, we get to week 12, and the reading for that will be chapter 11, which will be done with the book by then. And once we get observation, interpretation, and application finished next week, then we'll take those and we will apply them to all of those categories that you, that you see there, the grammar, the literature, and all the way down the line. So I know we've been kind of moving fairly quickly through these outlines and through these notes, but we're going to come back and be able to spend quite a bit of time talking about these and, and applying them to um, all of these different categories. So there is a little bit of method to the madness, okay? That's kind of how we're doing it. But I just want to remind you, read chapter 12 for next week, and then we'll, we'll have that third um, part of this, this uh, triad of observation, interpretation, and application. And just one more thing. Some of you may um, know who, let's see, who Mike Block is, Dr. Block. Did you have Dr. Block? Yeah. Um, just a really a great theologian, but he's also a, an excellent writer. He's somebody who's um, able to communicate very, very well in his books and things. I found this this morning and, and was just listening to it. He he takes hermeneutical principles, so it's really uh, apropos to what we've been talking about, and he talks about them through these 10 strategic emphases of dispensational theology. So this is online. Um, he also talks about a bunch of the stuff that's out there on YouTube, you know, and how an awful lot of it is not so good. But uh, this is really, really good. He's um, an excellent theologian, an excellent writer, and he, and he knows how to take hermeneutical principles and apply them to the Word of God. So I recommend this and also his, his books. Um, he wrote this one here, Dispensationalism, Essential Beliefs, and Common Myths. Some of the best theologians can be really concise and uh, get their point across very, very well. He also wrote this one on dispensational hermeneutics. Also in this one, he's going to interact with um, what we're going to be talking about, the Christocentric hermeneutic that is fairly popular out there, and uh, he does a real good job with that. He's also capable of writing more extensive works. Um, he wrote this one, really, really good. Uh, it's on the kingdom. It is a biblical theology of the kingdom of God called He Will Reign Forever. Remember last time um, I talked a little bit about a, the New Testament biblical theology that I had, and that biblical theology is a kind of theology. It's a way of doing theology that lies between exegesis of texts and systematics. Systematic theology is comprehensive. It's the, the big picture, and it takes the entire Bible and it systematizes it. But a, a biblical theology like this one here is, is thematic and it's narrower. That's the main difference. So this is a biblical theology of the kingdom of God, 
which is the theme of the Bible. He says it's a theme, and I agree with him 100%. Um, so, really good. I like to pass on uh, things that I find that are very good. He is a uh, he's one of the professors at the Shepherd Seminary back in North Carolina, and so wanted to wanted to recommend that to you. Okay, what about what we're going to talk about this morning? Interpretation of the three of these. This is probably going to be the broadest, okay? Because as you can imagine, all the different interpretive uh, methods and so on that that are out there. Um, but nevertheless, I think we can still stick with our basic hermeneutical uh, principles of a literal, grammatical, historical, interpretive uh, methodology and uh, interpretation. So first on the list is the p- principle of progressive revelation and illumination. Okay, Progressive revelation and illumination. Very important to, to see this. And as we talk about the the different kinds of interpretive processes, we'll see that uh, you can you can not pay attention to this, and and it creates some serious problems in interpretation. So um, um, we're still going to practice the literal or biblical method of interpretation from the top paragraph there. And this is again coming back to where did we get this? Well, we got this from the prophets from the apostles, from Christ himself, and from the early church. This is how they interpreted the Word of God. And you can find these principles in the Scriptures. But the principle of progressive revelation and also progressive illumination, okay? Um, So God's Word is unfolded gradually with God revealing himself to man progressively in stages and periods of time. That revelation was closed with the final verse of the book of Revelation. Okay, and a good example of this is the Abrahamic covenant, contained in the in the three promises to Abraham and his descendants were land, seed, blessing. In that covenant are these promises; they're built right into it, and they're progressively revealed, detailed, and clarified later on in history and Scripture. Um, in Deuteronomy twenty nine and thirty, the land promise is further developed. In 2 Samuel 7, the seed or the Davidic promise or part of that covenant is developed. And in Jeremiah 31, 31, then 33, the new covenant is progressively added to and developed there. And uh, oftentimes, we as uh, Western thinkers and readers, we see things in in a sort of a linear sense, right? First this, then this, then this, and this, culminating in this. And uh, oftentimes I'll hear of the people talk about the covenants of the Bible, the actual historical covenants. So you have the Noahic covenant, the, and they'll say the uh, Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, the land covenant, and so on. And uh, But if you have to realize that those three facets, the land, seed, and blessing, are built into the Abrahamic covenant. They are part of that covenant. And then they are progressively revealed throughout the rest of Scripture and coming clear even into the New Testament. Okay, um, The Apostle Paul refers to that in Galatians 3.8. And even Peter does also as well refer to the um, when he, in Acts chapter 3, when he talks about the the promise that God made that through Abraham he would bless the nations. Okay, He's going to bless them with salvation. 
So that's what that talks about. Also, um, the issue of the church. The church was not known in the Old Testament, but is revealed in the New Testament. Paul develops this concept in Ephesians and also in Colossians, calls the church a mystery. And it, 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 when he uses that terminology, he's talking about what was not known in the old, but now is revealed in the new. And the church did not even come into existence until uh, Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And there's several reasons for that, okay? So um, also, here's another example. Jesus told his disciples, I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So there's going to be a progress of what they come to know, and, uh, and, and it's, you, you don't know it all right now. And so um, be there. The fact of progressive revelation, and this is so critical to your hermeneutics, in no way means that previous revelations, that is the meaning of the text, are replaced or contradicted by subsequent ones. Okay? That is really important. That's a major issue being tossed all over the place in the battlefields of uh, hermeneutics and how people treat the Word of God. And one of the reasons that happens is that um, they do take New Testament biblical theologies and then read them back into the Old Testament. And when you do that, you basically obliterate the progressive nature of the Old Testament. And you're using then that that biblical theology structure as your hermeneutical lens to look at the Old Testament. That is not legitimate to do that. What they have to then come up with is that God has has altered or changed the original meaning of that Old Testament revelation. You can't do that, okay? Uh, because that makes the Old Testament absolutely worthless in darkness, right? Um, God, when He gave, and we talked about this last time, when He gave the law and all of that detail, He expected them to see it for what it was and obey it in detail, did He not? He held, holds them accountable for it. And uh, part of what Jeremiah was uh, prophesying was, you disobeyed God, and He's going to hold you accountable for, it, for that and judge it. Well, if He's holding them accountable for it, then, it's, then the clarity of it is there. Okay, and uh, so you have to you have to let that revelation. You have to take it for what it is, and you can't take the New Testament and try to read it back into the old. You have to take it for what it says. You get clarity, you get more detail, of course, but you do not change the meaning. Okay, there's a great quote there, uh, and I gave you a couple of them there. Corey Marsh has a good little book out. He's a professor down in Southern California. And also that one on page 97 from um, Dr. Feinberg about how even though there's progressive revelation, it does not change the meaning of the Old Testament text. Okay? you have any thoughts or uh, comments about that or questions? Yeah. You mean if you're going to interact with somebody in, in the progressive church? Oh, yeah. Well, I would, I would just take them back to um, the idea of... of what we're talking about is how you treat the text of Scripture and, and the very nature of the Word of God. See, we're responding to the, to the Bible for what it is. It's the Word of God. It's inerrant. It's authoritative, as we developed early on. That's the foundational thing. But it's also that revelation is progressively given. And um, where, it really, where it really comes into a battlefield is when uh, 
you have groups that want to want to start with the New Testament and then look back and use that as a hermeneutical grid to interpret the old. But those are two really separate issues. The the progressive church, that's a misnomer as far as I'm concerned. They're not progressive at all. They're just old heresy. Oh, absolutely. So they're very attractive. Sure. Now yeah, oh yeah. Um I'd just say they're two different two different issues. Um, we're talking about how we treat the Word of God because of the nature of the Word of God. That's all. And I would say if you're dealing with that person, you need to f- clear away all of the arguments and everything else. What do you do with your sin? There's only one answer. You must trust in Jesus Christ. So I would preach the Gospel to them and uh, don't, let them, don't let them divert you into all kinds of philosophical or even, you know, other kinds of issues. That's not their problem. Their problem is not data. It's not understanding. Their problem is they don't believe in Christ. And so they need to be regenerate in order to even under, begin to understand this. Yeah. Could be, yeah. Let me, let me illustrate it a little bit, and maybe it'll help. I don't know. Um, some of you guys hunt. So you're set up on opening day. Sun's just coming up. You're set up in a nice hide. Out in front of you is a great big clear cut. And you know that a bull elk has brought his cows into that clear cut every every day. And so as you're watching out there, you see something move 300 yards away in the tree line. Something's there. Okay, It's there. But you don't know exactly what it is. But as it steps out into the clearing, you can kind of see what it is. Okay, that's you. That is progressive revelation. But... Did your progressive knowledge of that, did it change any way, shape, or form what walked out into that clearing? Okay. And now we're going to talk about progressive illumination. You want to get a closer look, so you pull up your optics. Oh, that's not a bull elk. That's a cow. Or that's not a bull elk or a cow elk. That's a man. That's another hunter. So you have... But what you the, the progressive revelation, the change that took place that gave you clarity did not change what walked into that clearing at all, did it? And even when you got progressive illumination, whoa, did not change what walked in. It just changed your perception of it. Is that an adequate illustration? Okay. Um, so that's what we're dealing with here is the nature of the Bible. And all kinds of things and people can probably label themselves as progressive, but it's, I think most of the time they do that because it's a, a fad and they, it sounds kind of good and probably feels really good. Yeah, Simon. Yeah, I think so. Um, but to get back to your first question, yes, they had enough. Um, in Genesis 15, it says that uh, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Okay, what did he believe? Well, if you look at that passage, he believed what God had said to him. Essentially, he believed the word of God. Now, there's a whole school of thought, and and this is part of that Christocentric hermeneutic that says, well, Abraham believed um, that Jesus would die on the cross for his sins and pay for his sins and all the rest. Where do you get that? They have to read that from the New Testament back into that. Abraham simply believed what God had told him. And it was reckoned, it, that was reckoned to him as righteousness. Okay. Um, so that's a good example of, of what we mean by that. Um, another example would be, and we're going to talk about it a little later on in John chapter four, the woman at the well. Okay. That whole story about how she went out and Jesus was there at the well. She had 
progressive uh, illumination of who Jesus was. She went out to that well that day to do what she did probably every day. She took her water jug and started out for the well. What did she see? Now, I've asked, I've asked this question in Sunday school class before, and somebody went, she saw Jesus on the cross and his love for her. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no. I think that's the right answer, but that's, no. What did she see? She saw somebody. There's somebody at the well, right? She got a little closer. Oh, it's a man. She got a little closer. She could tell from his clothing. He's a Jewish man. And as she got a little closer, he's a, he's a rabbi from his clothing. And she got a little closer, and guess what happened? That Jewish man spoke to her. That was unheard of. And what did he speak to her? He asked her for something. What did he ask a favor of her? Give me a drink. What? That would have meant she, if she poured that cup of water in that vessel, he would have had to have touched that as a Jewish rabbi and not only touch it, put it to his lips and drink it. That, that, would, that wouldn't have happened. Those guys would have just, that would have been a, he, they would have, he would have been defiled. And then as he engaged her in conversation, you know, uh, talking about the water and using the well water for uh, this illustration, well, if, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you would ask me and I would give you water welling up to eternal life. And then uh, she, at some point she gets kind of religious, you know, and starts talking, starts making an issue because she's a Samaritan. They didn't, they worship differently than the Jews. And uh, she made an issue out of location, you know. Well, you people worship in Jerusalem. We worship on Mount Gerizim. And he gives her that lesson on worship. Time will come. And finally she says, okay, give me the water. I'll take it, right? Now, if that had been about 95% of the churches in this country, he would have said, whoa, praise hallelujah, I got one, right? But he doesn't, what's that? Baptizer. <laughs> He doesn't do that. He, but what does he say to her? Go get your husband and bring him here. He had to deal with her sin. And she said, I don't have a husband. And in the Greek text, we're going to talk about this when we talk about grammar. Um, the word order is flexible enough that you can do different things with it. She, de- she de-emphasized the word husband. I don't have a husband. But when he quotes her, he says, you do rightly say. And he commends her for her honesty. He reverses the word order, if you look at it in the Greek. And he says, a husband I do not have, when he quotes her. For you have had five husbands. And the one you're living with now, the pilgrim back in the love shack, is not your husband. And what does she say? Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now she knows progressively that he can read her heart. She knows about her. he knows all about her past, and remember what she went and told the other Samaritans. I met somebody that told me, right? And then at the very end of it, the other Samaritans say, "Now we know, now we know that this is the Savior of the world." Okay, and when what they mean by world in the context is not everybody without exception, but everybody without distinction. Why? Because they're Samaritans and they've just been saved by a Jewish rabbi, you know, who they now know is the is the Savior. Okay? So that woman in that day, in that morning, in that encounter, she progressively understood who this was. Okay? So there's an example of progressive illumination. And um, he revealed himself to her. Okay? So there's probably many other... Um, uh, illustrations we could find about that. 
Um, the illuminating work of the Spirit, progressive in the believer, but also, very interestingly, in the church. Jesus told his disciples, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. They still had a lot to learn, and the Holy Spirit was going to disclose that to them. Now, what it what it does not mean, he will guide you into all the truth. Some people say that, okay, you're, they're going to become omniscient. You know, they're going to know all truth. That's not what it means. It simply means that as you learn the truth, it's going to be the Holy Spirit that teaches it to you. Okay? And uh, so there's there's uh, progressive revelation of the Bible, but also progressive illumination of the uh, individual. Um, I noticed back in um, the article by Pastor MacArthur, there's a, there's a pretty good quote there. Well, the whole thing's pretty good. <laughs> but I just noticed it as I went through it again. Yeah, page 82. This is third paragraph down. He says, of course, the doctrine of illumination does not mean that believers can unlock every theological secret. Deuteronomy 29.29. By the way, that's a verse you ought to have in your hip pocket when it comes to hermeneutics and understanding the Bible. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. Okay, There are some things that are secret, we're not going to know and can't know because they haven't been revealed. But the other things can be have been revealed to us. So that's a that's a good verse there to kind of keep in your uh, hermeneutical uh, file cabinet there. Or that we do not need godly teachers, Ephesians 4. It also does not preclude us from disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness, 1 Timothy 4.8. Or from doing the hard work of careful Bible study, 2 Timothy 2.15, you know, a workman. Yet we can approach our study of God's Word with joy and eagerness, knowing that as we investigate the Scriptures with prayerfulness and diligence, the Holy Spirit will illuminate our hearts to comprehend, embrace, and apply the truths we are studying. Okay, So that's the encouragement there. And um, this also is that an example of that um, theological term, the concomitant working of Word and Spirit. The Word and the Spirit are always together in Scripture. Okay, but here's one of the ones that's uh, very fascinating to me, that um, the illuminating work of the Spirit is also progressive in the church and in history. Very, very interesting. There's a quotation there from a, a theologian of bygone days, James Orr, a Scottish theologian. It's from this book right here, published in 1901. I didn't buy it new. <laughs> no matter what you believe <laughs> Glasgow Public Library even smells, still smells like an old library uh, based on a series of lectures he did um, in, in the um, 1880s um, but what he what his whole premise is that through the history of the church the, the progress of the development of theology has um, 
followed uh, an, an order that even if you look at the table of contents in a current systematic theology, it'll follow right along with that, okay? Um, it, uh, it starts with what, what's called, commonly called theology proper, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So the early church councils that you hear about and read about way back when had to do with what? The person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay. And then it's progressed through, and if you come up to the, the Reformation, what did they deal with primarily? Soteriology. And so what came out of that was the understanding mainly of the doctrines of grace and some other things they dealt with. But here's a quote here from this book. Has it ever struck you then what a singular parallel there is between the historical course of dogma, that's the old-fashioned word for theology, okay, on the one hand, and the scientific order of the textbooks on systematic theology on the other. The history of dogma is simply the system of theology spread out through the centuries. Okay, So at the end of every systematic theology book is what topic? Eschatology or last things. Well, what is the last thing to have some real systematic development has been eschatology. Probably mainly in the last couple hundred years has the system of eschatology been worked with, okay? And there's still work to do on it. But um, that I always find that kind of fascinating how that uh, throughout history it has followed the same uh, pattern of development that uh, your basic systematic theology books are going to have. Okay, so any thoughts you might have on that or, or questions? Progressive revelation. Um, here's another one. You, you may have heard this. The Old Testament saints looked forward to the cross, but the New Testament saints look back to the cross. You've heard that? Kind of makes sense. Wait a minute. Time out. That's a real overstatement. Okay. Did they have revelation of the cross back in the Old Testament? What could they understand? In fact, up until Isaiah about seven centuries prior to Christ, um, they did not have a concept, really, of the death of Messiah, right? Even all the way up to the disciples. Remember, Jesus in John uh, Matthew 16 took them all the way up to uh, Caesarea Philippi, way up in the north. And as he began to come back down, travel down, he began to talk to them about his impending betrayal and arrest and his, his crucifixion. They were, they were shocked. And remember, remember how Peter uh, contradicted him? Uh, they weren't getting it. But these guys were Jews who should have, and you know, they had some knowledge of the Old Testament. But even up to the point of his crucifixion, it, they, were, they were traumatized by that. They were shocked by it. They anticipated, since they knew he was Messiah, they anticipated that he was going to set up his kingdom right then and there. They couldn't see the cross. And so... As far as progressively being revealed, um, a lot of times people want to argue about the the what the what you know category of what is it what is it's this or it's that, and um, what what we have to sometimes do is stand back and say, well, wait a minute, maybe there's another category we could talk about because the 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 salvation of Gentiles was clearly revealed in the Old Testament, clear back to the Abrahamic covenant. Through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Those are the Gentiles. Those are the non-Jews. And then, then many, many other references to, to Gentile blessing. So they knew that. That was the what. What did they not, could they not see? 
How about the how? How is God going to bless the Gentiles? Well, He's going to do it through the cross, which they could not see. And Paul develops that. The death of Christ created a new man in Ephesians, right? And that new man was made up of Jew and Gentile. And that new man was the body of Christ called the church. They couldn't see the church. And so they were shocked when this Messiah, whom they thought was going to come and wipe out the Gentiles, you know, who were occupying their land. And uh, so they couldn't see the cross. They couldn't see the body of Christ because it had not been revealed yet. Progressively revealed. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, so, the second principle, principle of authorial intent. Okay? Authorial intent. We need to look at that as you study your Bible, as you read through and you're asking developmental questions. What is the author trying to communicate? Authorial intent. Here's another uh, reference I've, I've used, uh, Dr. Chow, Abner Chow, and his book, a really fine book on hermeneutics. The scriptural authors demanded and displayed a respect for authorial intent. They cared about the historical background, literary context, grammar, and words of scripture. They also knew how prior writers interconnected their writings with other texts on a variety of levels. They were well aware of the meaning of scripture and used it in a way that abided by the original intent. Okay, very important. And so, A, there, since the biblical writers are our model for interpretation, we should strive to imitate their literal, historical, grammatical method of interpretation. They took into account all the parameters we studied in the previous lesson on observation. What are the advantages of seeking the authorial intent? Well, if we study authorial intent, we see the deep reverence the biblical writers had for the Word of God because they had a deep reverence for the God of the Word. Okay, Back to our foundational um, elements of understanding what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with God's Word. What about that God? What is He like? Right, And so they had a deep reverence for the Word of God because they had a deep reverence for the God of the Word. It is also a safeguard against eisegesis, that is, reading a text reading into a text what the author didn't intend. Eisegesis, reading into it. Exegesis is what you want to do, is read out of the text. Let the text tell you what it means. It is also a safeguard against anachronistic interpretation, reading a meaning from another time back into the text. Anachronos. Ana is a prefix, means another or again. You've probably heard of the Anabaptists or Anabaptists who uh, rejected the infant baptism of the Catholic Church and only believed in a another baptism, which was a believer's baptism, anachronos. Um, easy to do that. It's real easy to see a word in an English translation and then read that, read your understanding of that word back into the passage. Okay, One of the most notorious ones comes from uh, Romans 1.16, the verse that says that the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Paul's great statement there. And uh, the word in Greek is dunamis. Okay, dunamis. And we know that when Alfred Nobel um, worked with trying to stabilize the explosive nitroglycerin, which was killing miners left and right because it was so unstable, finally he figured out if he infused it in uh, uh, like diatomaceous earth, it would stabilize it, but it would still have its explosive force and uh, velocity and be able to fracture rock and all that. Well, 
these guys always want to name something a Greek name or a Latin name. So he, he used the Greek word dunamis and he called it dynamite. Okay. So Paul had absolutely no concept of dynamite or explosives, right? So there have been pastors and, and it's easy to do, so he can't really knock it. They talk about the explosive power of the gospel, you know. Well, that <laughs> that's an anachronism. You're that's not what Paul meant. That could not possibly be the authorial intent, okay? So, uh, and, and it's easy to do that, I admit. I probably have done it on occasion as well. Um, not, not like that, not that one, because that one's kind of notorious. You know, they, they warn you about that. <laughs> but uh, that's an anachronism. Um, by the way, there's a, a really nice, good book by a, a New Testament scholar named D.A. Carson. He was a professor at... Uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he's done some really fine work in New Testament work. And it's called Exegetical Fallacies. I have it. And uh, because, you know, if you preach or teach, you, you want to find out what the mistakes are, you know, so you don't make them, even though you're, you're going to make mistakes when you do this kind of thing. And, uh, but he's got a whole list of exegetical fallacies, what not to do and how not to approach Scripture. So that's a helpful book. And another thing it helps us, it helps us remember that meaning is determined by usage. This is it's so important, but it just seems so simple. Meaning is determined by usage. How the writer is using a word, phrase, quotation, or allusion tells us the meaning he is trying to communicate. Okay? Meaning is determined by usage. Can you dig it? Oh, yeah, you mean like dig a hole? Is that what you mean? No, can you dig it? Can you get down with that? You mean, can you dig a hole down? You guys are hopeless. Never mind. <laughs> Not how I'm using the word, right? And uh, you can think of all kinds of words that change their usage through the years, you know, and, and um, uh, it, 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 it really, some of them are almost ridiculous sounding when you really think of the literal meaning of that word, but how it's being used is what counts, you know? Um, it also, another advantage, it helps to ensure we will understand God's intent through His Word, which is the whole point of Bible study. And that's getting back to Bernard Ram's quote at the top of page 3. The primary need for a system of hermeneutics is to ascertain the meaning of the Word of God. Okay, it's just that simple. Okay, any uh, questions you might have about that or thoughts? Okay. Um, another thing you might run into since we're talking about authorial intent, there are those who sometimes argue, and really this is an exegetical expedient because if they can, if they can do this, then they can, they can argue about the actual meaning of a text. They want to say, well, okay, you have these human authors, like Simon said, you know, Peter's, uh, statement about the, you know, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So some of them want to argue, okay, well, maybe they didn't quite get it right. Maybe they, maybe their intent was not God's intent, okay? I don't know if you've ever heard this before. I've heard this argued, and therefore we can't really, maybe it actually means this because they're not really following after God's true intention. The problem with that is, just on the surface, that's just total speculation, right? What do we have to deal with? We have the text. That's what we are given to deal with. <clears throat> Anything else is speculation. This same concept comes into play, um, and I 
I talk about this a little later on, we're going to talk about this, the whole issue of uh, contemporary prophets and um, the whole proposal, and mostly it's within the charismatic movement, that there are present-day prophets, just like there was in the Old Testament. The problem is, those men were held to, an, to a level of accuracy of 100%, right? But they obviously don't do that now. So what they have to do, again, this is an expedient. They say, well, we have fallible New Testament prophets. You know? And uh, the problem was those prophets perfectly wrote and spoke what God wanted them to teach and preach and speak, right? And write. God not only gave them the thought, but he also superintended the speaking of it. Nothing happened. God didn't drop the ball between the brain and the, and the mouth, you know. Didn't give them the message and then somehow uh, flub the communication of it. That didn't happen. So all they're trying to do is to create some sort of a, a, a theology that, that accommodates fallible New Testament prophets. Okay, So that's something you may run into. Well, then... Roman numeral three, the principle of the centrality of Christ. And we're coming back to um, this concept of the kind of the way you look at the Old Testament or the New Testament. That's actually going to be the last thing we study in this in this course. How do the New Testament writers look at and use the Old Testament and um, the carefully and biblically applied this Christocentric hermeneutic is a legitimate application of Luke 24, and we looked at that last time, Acts 10.43, etc., which rightly stress the centrality of Jesus Christ throughout Scripture and God's plan of redemption and history. However, some have developed this principle into a theological system, which then becomes the interpretive lens to view all of Scripture, even creating a man-made covenant called the covenant of grace, a covenant found nowhere in Scripture. This leads to the false assumption that Jesus must be found in every part of Scripture, which results in the serious and abusive interpretive error of having to spiritualize text of Scripture to see him there. Okay, We, we saw this last time in Luke 24. He, he spoke to them about his where he was in the Old Testament. What he did not say, that in the Old Testament, in the prophets, I'm in every single verse. I'm in every single word. He, just that wherever he was, he showed them that. Okay, That's the concept there. If you take it to mean that he has to be everywhere, then when he's not actually there, somehow you got to force him into that text. You can't do that. You have to let that revelation unfold as it naturally does throughout the course of Scripture. A more biblical method reads the Scripture from a Christotelic approach, which preserves the progressive nature of God's revelation while affirming that all of Scripture has as its purpose and endpoint the person and work of Jesus Christ, and it does. This approach also prevents a theologically imbalanced view of the Trinity some some have called the Christomonic view. It's such a focal point on the Son that um, the other members of the Trinity are sort of diminished in that system. Okay, But the real key to it is, and this really, um, Dr. Chow has done some really fine work in this, Christotelic. Telic or telos means the end or the final thing that everything is pointing to. And that's a healthier way to look at this. 
all of Scripture points to Christ ultimately, and it, it moves toward historically His second coming and His uh, lordship and kingship. Okay, So it all moves toward Him, but you can't take that and turn it around and then try to see Him in everything that where He is not. Okay, You see the difference? And there's also an article in the back that uh, is going to deal with that as well. I'm maybe not quite as favorable to it as that article is, but you read that article and you'll see, try to see the distinction between a, a, a Christocentric hermeneutic and a Christotelic. I think the Christotelic view is the, is the best way to approach it. Okay, Any thoughts that you have on that? I think they had messianic expectations. Um, they have strong, powerful messianic expectations right into the New Testament. But what were they? They did not. They did not think Messiah was going to come and die on a cross or be. When he was arrested by the Romans and led off like a lamb to the slaughter, I mean it. That devastated those people. And when he was crucified, I mean until his resurrection, <laughs> they thought it was over. You know, they were devastated by that. They were looking for Messiah. There was a very high level of, of, of messianic expectation. If you read Luke's account, Luke's gospel. He, he lines up all these witnesses, and every single one of those people had a high messianic expectation. And um, uh, so they had that, but what they couldn't see was the cross. They couldn't see how, they, they could not comprehend how he was going to, uh, that he would die. They thought he was going to, I mean, they, the, the disciples, even on that journey back down to Jerusalem, when he's telling them about his impending arrest and crucifixion, those guys are jockeying for position in the kingdom, you know. Hey, we're gonna. This kingdom's gonna happen, and I think probably I ought to be, you know, one of the top guys in it. You know, they were arguing about that. It was embarrassing to see what they were doing, but they just weren't getting it. And I just kind of have to come back to what what he's what we saw last time in Luke twenty four. Their eyes were prevented from seeing him even after the resurrection, and then he opened their eyes. They were totally dependent on the illuminating work of the Spirit to either show them or not show them. If they had anticipated and thought that they, he was going to get arrested, I mean, Peter reacted, well, how? Pull out his sword, and Jesus said, can't do this, right? So um, I think they had messianic expectations, but the messianic expectations were limited to a political Messiah. They couldn't see the cross. They couldn't see this, uh, his death. So, and other than that, I think it's it's hard to know. He can know what we know. He knew what we knew. We can see it in the text. To go beyond that, I think you know we might be speculating a little too much to try to figure out what he knew. Well, I don't know if they knew it then, but even remember in the upper room, they 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 were going to understand this later on, and they did. So they were, in a sense, I think they were sort of prevented from seeing what was going to really happen immediately. But later on, they looked back and they said, okay, now we see this. I mean, the Apostle Paul sure did. He, when he would go in a synagogue and read, read from their own scrolls, you know, Old Testament passages, and he would say, and that's Jesus right there. Well, he didn't see that before that, but he certainly did later on. So there was progressive illumination of these guys after the fact. So, but other than that, it's kind of hard to say what, you know, what David thought or saw, um, other than he cert they certainly had messianic expectations.
What the, what the Old Testament saints saw was the kingdom when the Messiah came. There's going to be a kingdom. Okay? What they could not see, because they did not have the book of Revelation yet, was how long that kingdom would be on earth, the earthly phase of the kingdom of 1,000 years. They also couldn't see how it would end, which is not revealed until mid-90s, uh, the first century. And uh, well, that's a whole other theological discussion. Which means Paul didn't know it either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it was not revealed until Revelation, the book of Revelation um, gives two new pieces of information. Okay, What it really does, it organizes chronologically the rest of the Old Testament, which they had no, they had no clue how this was all going to fit together. But the only, the only things that are actually, that are new are the length of the earthly kingdom and how it comes to an end. So they weren't, they were not seeing, uh, everything until, till later on. In fact, many of them died without knowing that, right? Because 95, 96 AD was when that was, when that was completed. Yeah. Was there, there was a question in her hand. I wouldn't call it human breathed in the no, concept. Well, I, I would just go back to what Peter said. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so there is this idea of the dual authorship, but the but you remember what we saw Paul commending the Thessalonians who received his teaching not as the word of men, but the word of God. Okay? So so there is a little bit of a mystery then how does God use men to do this but I maybe the best language I can say is what the scripture says men moved by the holy spirit spoke from God and it was inerrant and therefore infallible and therefore authoritative and so <clears throat> I don't think we can again getting back to that speculative thing well did they really write what God wanted them to write and I'd say absolutely they did because he superintended not just the thought but also the mechanism by which they inscripturated. That's why we limit inerrancy to the original autographs, because after that, you know, some some error did creep in in the copying. So, does that does that help at all, Mike? Sure. I they're gonna. Well, it demands them becoming believers. Their problem isn't data. Their problem is not. Their problem is a lack of belief. They need they need to trust Christ, and then they will understand this. You can't do it without that. I remember that was one of our first requirements for this study, you know, to effectively comprehend everything that's going on. So, what's that? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of the things, you know, we as Christians, we're, we present this, and the unbelieving world, they, ah, you know, it's ridiculous. You, you talk to these people. I do too. I have my, my whole life. But, uh, they can't comprehend it apart from the work of the Spirit of God in their lives. So that's part of illumination. You know? Praise God that He does that by His grace for us. Right? Roman numeral 4 on page 17, the principle of history and culture. When we talk about in um, context... Most of the time, we're probably talking about the context of a verse or a clause or a phrase within a context in the passage. But there's a lot of context, okay, that you can think about. And uh, when we talk, when we say we're going to make an historical, grammatical interpretation, this took place in history. All of these things did. So, in the original autographs, the Bible was written in three different languages: Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. 
not much Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of the Chaldeans in, in the Babylonian captivity that was used. And um, it was written over a period of many centuries by more than 40 authors of a wide range of cultures and backgrounds, personalities, and all of that. So the diligent interpreter must be a student of the historical and cultural context of the writer he is studying. Again, here's where your developmental questions can come into play. Who are these people? Who is this guy who's writing? What's his background? What's his history? And, and oftentimes you'll be told right there in the, in the text, you know, what this person is. Uh, many times it'll, it'll say something in the year of so-and-so, you know, and so there'll be like this timestamp to let you know this is an historic event. Um, if it wasn't, it wouldn't say that. And I say that because throughout history, skeptics and liberals have said, well, this didn't happen. This was just made up story. Then why would they give it a timestamp? Why would Isaiah say in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and that type of thing. So very important to see that. Again, only the literal method of interpretation will yield the true meaning of the text. Here's a quote from uh, Dr. K uh, Don Campbell. If the teacher of the scriptures ignores the historical element, he is in effect allegorizing, that is, seeking a deeper sense on the ground that the natural historical sense is unsatisfactory or inadequate. Okay, you see that? You have to keep it, put it in and understand the historical context. And so, various kinds of context. The historical one, who were these people? The literary context, what kind of literature are we talking about here? And that's, there's various kinds of literature in Scripture. We're going to be talking about that. Some call It's called genre. You know, is it history? Is it law? Is it uh, poetry? Is it uh, wisdom literature? Is it a, a didactic session, section or a teaching section? Uh, and that type of thing. Another kind of context, the political. What was the political arrangement going on there? Jesus comes on the scene, and there's a certain political structure there that he had to deal with and, and as part of that whole storyline. The cultural context, the religious context, obviously a huge one throughout Scripture, and then the geographic context. What kind of land was this like? You know, um, has, a, has a real um, bearing on the storyline and how the story is told. You know, you can think in terms of the the uh, the whole um, picture of the shepherd and the shepherding, that type of thing. And then, of course, the social context. So these are all things you need to think about when you, when you study a passage, part of the developmental questions you can ask. Okay? And then finally, uh, Roman numeral 5, the principle of normal usage of language. God chose the medium of language with its normal and grammatical usages of words and concepts to write Scripture. So the interpreter should therefore seek to master the language of the Bible in its customary grammatical form. This is from a, a great little book by Paul Lee Tan. Uh, again, it's a fairly thin book, and he really knows how to explain literal interpretation. And so here are the various uh, ways we would look at this the language, first of all, down at the grammatical level or the word level, and which means we're going to take into account the kind of word, such as all those different kinds of words, the features of the word, such as person, number, tense, mood, voice, as far as verbs, 
Um, the biblical languages are, and the jargon term is, is inflected. So all languages are inflected. The words undergo changes. Biblical languages, especially Greek, are highly inflected. Okay, um, You can have dozens of different spellings for a single Greek word. And each one of those spellings tells you something about that. With the nouns, <clears throat> you have the case system. With, with the verbs, you have all those features, person, number, tense, mood, voice, and that type of thing. So um, that's something that you can take into account. Now, we have very excellent English translations, okay? And we have lots of them. And you have easy access to them. And for the most part, they reflect these grammatical features. Now, which means... Um, you never want to, or I don't ever want to uh, communicate that unless you've studied the biblical languages, you can't understand what the Bible said. That's not true. You can get some finer features and different details, of course. But um, with our excellent English translations that we have, you're going to, those, most of them are pretty transparent as far as letting you know what is under underneath the English translations, especially the ones where the translation philosophy was to communicate a maybe a more literal or a more formal equivalence, as it's sometimes called, rather than something more over on the side of a, uh, a paraphrase or a dynamic equivalent type. But we just have all kinds. And it's always good to look at two or three or four English translations, and you can see how they vary uh, a little bit. That's why I asked if somebody would read from the New American Standard or the, the uh, Legacy Standard, because I knew that that little word it is a referent back to God's word for uh, for Jeremiah. So um, we also want to look at the semantic range or the meaning range of a word as it is used in various contexts. Words have a semantic range and the range is a product of how they were used, right? Um, and so one of the exegetical fallacies that Dr. Uh, Carson talks about is you go look at a word up in the dictionary and you see this semantic range. Well, that's based on how it is used in all these different contexts. And you have to be careful that you don't see one you really like and you read that back into the text that you're studying or exegeting um, because then you may have picked the wrong usage of that word. Can you dig it? You know. And so uh, that's part of the process of exegesis. And then you would might want to, and, and much of this is done for you with the good translations, the diachronic or through time changes of the usage of a word. Words change through over time. And so what scholars uh, can do, and we have a, a, an abundance of, let's say, Greek literature. Uh, classical Greek goes back several centuries prior to the Koine period of the New Testament. We also have a lot of Greek works um, in that period, and then there's the patristic Greek. So there's a lot of lot of works that they can be uh, they can study, and they can go chase down these words. And plus, with the computer tools we have now, it's just an amazing thing uh, to be able to do that. And they can see how words change in their usage over time. So when we come up into the Koine period, and the biblical writers are writing. Uh, we can see how certain words maybe have come and taken the place of another word. There's many examples of that. So that would be a diachronic study through time. But what's really important is to do a synchronic 
point-in-time study, because what you really want to know is what did that word mean to that guy right then and there when he used that word? Okay, that's what's really what really counts. Now, this probably sounds like we're slicing the bologna kind of thin here, but that's part of the exegetical process that, that, that we do. And we interpret then at the syntactical clause or sentence level. So you look at the grammar of the individual words and how they're used and so on. But that word is in a context, and uh, it could be linked uh, to other words and a clause and sentence. So there's a syntactical study. The relationship of words in a sentence as to the subject, the object, if it's, is it the predicate, and so on. Um, or the way the writer uses words, clauses, in his writings, stylistic features. Maybe a certain writer, a gospel writer, uses certain words in certain ways and has stylistic um, differences, you know. Um, Matthew's gospel, the gospel of the king, was primarily directed toward Jewish people. And so uh, he talks about the kingdom of heaven, and it's pretty well thought that he does not use the kingdom of God because the use of that word would probably be offensive to his Jewish readers. Things like that. Now, some people have looked at that and said, okay, there's two different kinds of kingdoms because this guy's talking about the kingdom of heaven and he's talking about the kingdom of God. It must be two kingdoms. No, that's probably just a stylistic difference based on who he's writing to. Okay, That type of thing, you would have to take that into account. So the relationships of a word and a sentence the way a writer uses it, the positions of the words in a sentence to put stress or emphasis on a word. I mentioned uh, how Jesus quotes the woman at the well when he reverses the word order. It says exactly the same thing in the Greek. He quotes her. In fact, all your English translations, when he quotes her, it, it, it's exactly the same. But in the Greek, it actually, he reverses the word order. She de-emphasizes the word, I don't have a husband. But when he says, you do rightly say, a husband I do not have. That's a literal translation. So, what's that? It's Yoda speaking. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's, it's counterintuitive when you first see that. It doesn't sound right to us English speakers, but it's perfectly normal in Koine Greek. Um, there's multiple ways a sentence can be constructed. And uh, because each word is so highly inflected, you learn so much from how that particular form is about that word that it frees it up to be for the word order to be more flexible. Okay, and then uh, the theological implications of how a writer constructs and uses sentences that can be taken into account as well. And then the next level up, we interpret at the paragraph level to determine unit of thought in a certain section of text. Usually we would say in English, the paragraph is the unit of thought, right? And when you have a change of thought, you have a new paragraph. So these are things you would look for as you, as you study the Word of God. In fact, kind of a practical application of that, I remember uh, when they, you know, in preaching class, they would really stress, if you wind up with two main ideas in, a, in your, your exegesis of a passage, you got two sermons, okay? You probably heard that too. Don't, you know, you have to know where to cut that off because you don't want to communicate two different big ideas to a congregation. You want to focus on a single concept, single idea to the very best that you can. And it's going to vary in passages, you know, but I just, they're sitting on my shoulder saying that, you know, you have two main ideas after you're done with the exegesis, you got two messages. To, to sermons. Now, in uh, classes like this, you can do a whole lot more because it's a little, a little freer. 
but the unit of thought in a certain section of text. And then the flow of thought by a writer, such as Paul, indicting all men in sin in Romans. Paul thinks like a lawyer, you know, and he he can chain together all of these clauses with, with little words, little prepositions that communicate purpose or cause or things like that. In order that, and he goes on and on, so that, because of, you know, and... Uh, you have to pay attention to all those clauses because he may go on a long excursus over here and then turn around and come all the way back to where he started. So you have to try to follow the thought of the writer or the speaker. And then there can be a shift in thought from didactic or teaching section, Ephesians 1 through 3, to the practical section in Ephesians 4 through 6. Very common with Paul. He'll lay down a theological doctrinal foundation and then he'll say, now, because of that, here's how you should live your life. Saw that in Colossians, you know. How do you walk in the world based upon your new life in Christ? And this Christ is this cosmic creator, God of the universe. So that's how important it is for you to walk. And then in, and then D, we interpret taking into account the kind of literature, genre. We're going to see a whole section on this that we are reading. The structural features such as chiastic structure, or chiasm, inclusion, repetition, acrostic, and all the varied figures of speech found in scriptures, which make the Bible colorful as well as memorable and portable. Remember, many of these features, simply by the grace of God, were put into scripture so that because people did not have their own copy of the, of the text, uh, probably couldn't read even if they had one, they had to learn by hearing, and they got because there were certain structures and certain features of the text, it made it more portable for them to walk out the door of wherever they came, heard it, and then be able to think up, think on it, and meditate on it. Okay, and and almost the, all of these things we're going to be looking at later on. We'll be taking these these three interpretive principles. We'll be applying them to all these different things. So we'll, we're going to come back to this and do more work in it. Okay. So any thoughts or questions you might have on any of that? that can't be? Well, I would say every passage in Scripture has a context. Now, it may not have, every single one of these may not apply, but it does have some context. Sure, almanacs, um, anything that would help you understand. You know, when the Bible talks about going up to Jerusalem, um, we would say, you know, going up to Alberta, but to them, they're talking, you could be going south and still go up to Jerusalem because of its. they're talking about its elevation, not its direction, that kind of thing. And even, even certain differences culturally between like the Galileans, how they, how they figured time and days compared to uh, Judeans. Um, and so that comes into place with, uh, you know, the, there's kind of an age-old uh, discussion about, well, um, when was Jesus crucified? When was the upper room discourse? And was it was crucifixion Thursday or was it Friday? And uh, if you if you don't know that there might be a difference in how certain areas of people figured time, was it day night or was it night day? Then uh, you know that enters into it. Some of the first impulse might be to say, well, there's a contradiction in the Bible. No, there's a maybe a, a cultural. Uh, explanation for that, that type of thing. Does that answer answer your question? 
Well, I think what they don't do is speculate or reject it. Um, I mean, we have so much available to us now in the way of, uh, I mean, you could even just Wikipedia, you can get a lot of information on it or even a, a, a book on, on culture or uh, there's all kinds of things available to, to find out. And um, I'd, I'd say you still, if all you have is the text of Scripture, you can still understand and get out of it what God wants you to understand. If I understand your question right, um, I think I think you can learn about cultural things from extra biblical sources, but I would be very careful about that. In other words, you can say it could probably be this or possibly be this, but may not be able to be dogmatic about it. If I if I understand what you're what you're getting at, um, extra biblical sources can be helpful, but they can also be used in a variety of ways, and some of them aren't that helpful, okay? Um, there's some extra-biblical scholars out there. I don't know if you know who N.T. Wright is or ever heard of him, and the new perspective on Paul, and what, how Paul, Paul really didn't get justification correct, you understand. Their study is in what is called Second Temple Period Judaism. They go outside and they find all these resources and the rabbis teaching on uh, what justification is, and they formulate a whole new concept. They did. N.T. Wright, a British uh, Anglican. And it was called The New Perspective on Paul. You know, And basically, uh, no, you got it all wrong. You can't just use the Bible for this. You have to consult extra-biblical resources to find out what, it, what, it, what the Bible really means. Okay, You can learn some things, but you have to be very careful. Extra-biblical resources are not inerrant, and they are not authoritative. Okay? So, anything else? There is, and we are going to be talking about that. There's a set of rules, set of parameters that you can you can employ um, in the in the in the section where we talk about types and symbols. We're going to be dealing with that, but but yes, there is. Um, I, personally, I've always been very on the conservative side of things. I, I mean, if I if I'm going to call something an Old Testament type, I'm going to want to see an anti-type. You know, like John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, clearly, the Lamb type and anti-type, okay? Um, but, yeah, there's a whole set of criteria that we're going to be talking about for that. Uh, so we will get there. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.